Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now on with the show. Hey you! Indeed, hey to all of you, and welcome to episode 13 of One Step Beyond, a show about positively engaging with the world outside our door. I'm Tony Fletcher. In the default world, I primarily write books, primarily about music. But in recent years, more and more of my time has been occupied by the outdoor lifestyle and travel and this is my place to indulge in it. I hope you enjoy taking the journey with me. Talking of journeys, the sound you're hearing in the background is entitled An Offering to the Saviour Gompo. The Gompo monks are infamous amongst those who've heard of them for their supposed ability to run up to 200 miles in a single 24-hour period and apparently to levitate in the process. Now, however lightly we might want to take the second of those claims, the first of them is not entirely outside the realm of possibilities. And so I would love to tell you that I recorded that sound myself on a field trip to central Tibet, where the Gompo monks originate, and where I experienced their running capabilities for myself. However, sadly, if you know anything about the Chinese repression of Tibet, you'd be well aware that that would be impossible. In fact, Western contact with the Gompo monks within Tibet has been absolutely minimal, something we will come to later in this show. That raises the question of how I have a recording like this in the first place, and it's a delightful sidebar story I'm going to divulge now, because it brings together different facets of my life and helps set us up for this episode. Three decades ago, I bought a slew of mint-conditioned, shrink-wrapped LPs of indigenous music, recorded in the field all around the globe for the Lyricord label. I used quite a few of these records when I was DJing for sound effects in the 1990s, and I've held on to them even as I've stripped my record collection down to almost nothing. I mean, as I seek to travel more and more, I need less and less vinyl in my life. And yet there's something reassuring about having these chants and invocations and other found sounds from a fading indigenous world at hand. The LP in question here Lamas and Monks, Tibetan Ritual Music, somehow remained shrink-wrapped, unplayed, on my shelves for 30 years. Looking on the back sleeve the day of editing this show, prompted to find it by something that came up in the show, I learned that some of the recordings were made all the way back in 1961 in Kalingpong and Gangtok, two far northern Indian cities I visited 55 years after those recordings were made, which means in 2016. And in fact, that one of the recordings on this LP, an offering to the Guru Drachma, was recorded at a monastery I actually visited, Yenchi Monastery in Gangtok. According to a picture I took there, that monastery was founded in 1804 by a celebrated lama called Drudthab Karpo, who, quote, was famous for his flying power. On our travels, at monasteries and museums in Darjeeling and in the Sikkim capital of Gangtok, 
I heard and saw detailed stories about the extent of the Chinese repression of the Tibetan Buddhists. It was, and remains, something real and truly horrific. I'd like to tell you these stories in more detail at some point, painful as they may be, but they're not actually the subject of this episode. Now, we're here to discuss Still Running, The Art of Meditation in Motion by Vanessa Zwise Goddard, and don't worry, it connects. I first met Suisse approximately 14 years ago, at a Buddhist monastery, but this one in Mount Tremper, in the Catskills. Like most people who enter through the gate there, I guess I was looking to find myself, or at least find out more about myself, or maybe try and find peace with myself. I was taught how to sit the Zazen, that is the form of meditation practiced at the Zen Mountain Monastery in Mount Tremper, by none other than Suisse herself who was on her way to becoming a monastic there. I found her instructions simple, effective and to the point, and I became a regular at the Sunday services and Wednesday evening open zazen sessions, where I would sit for 90 minutes, interrupted only by a 10-minute walking zazen, cross-legged, stock still on a cushion, trying to let go of my thoughts and exist only in the moment. It's no easy process, either sitting still or letting go of one's thoughts, but it was something I took upon myself for many years. In fact, almost the only times I would be absent from the monastery on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings would be when I had running races, which, almost perversely, mostly took place on Sunday mornings and, in spring and summer, Wednesday evenings. I justified those absences from the Buddha Hall by the fact that running was also, for me, a Zen activity, and especially that when I was racing, I could free myself from my thoughts, the longer I attended the monastery, the more I noticed that Zuisei and some of the other residents and monastics were also runners. I'd see them out jogging, literally, on my road, and yet I rarely interacted with them because I got the feeling that they were running meditatively and not seeking interruptions in the form of waving or idle chatter. And so, through all these years, I never once really got to talk about running with Zuisei. And then, a couple of years back, I moved on from the monastery, not just physically in terms of location, but emotionally, I guess. The lessons and practices I had learned there were a massive part of my life experience that I'm extraordinarily grateful for, and I've carried them with me, I hope, but it was no longer a calling to attend in person. As it turns out, Zuisei was going through a similar but different process, returning to what is called lay life after 20 years living there, and moving to New York City to become a writer. So when her first book, Still Running, was published this summer by Shambhala Books, I knew instinctively I had to get a copy and bring her on this show. In a year like 2020, when we're being bombarded more than ever by news, real or imagined, by tragedy, by a pandemic, by chaos instilled from our so-called leaders, when our phones are constantly dinging on us, when we're being encouraged to let loose our unedited prejudices and rawest thoughts on the world, at any moment in time, for distribution to anyone and everyone, then it really is important for us to live life awake, to be present within every moment. In short, we can choose whether to let this chaos destroy us or not destroy us. And as discussed on the last episode by Jess Gumkowski, the yogi triathlete, meditation, zazen, whatever you want to call it, is an extremely important tool if we choose the latter, higher 
path. And maybe this is a good time to note that the Buddhism as practiced by the Zen Mountain Monastery is a Western form drawn from the traditions of ancient China and Japan, that it does not promote the notion of reincarnation, let alone levitation, and that it questions the notion of Buddhism as a religion, even by definition. This form of Buddhism is quite austere, very grounded, focused deeply on Zazen, but truly compassionate and politically progressive. The Zen Mountain Monastery has been cloistered in 2020 as a result of the pandemic, but the upside of the shuttered gates is that it is presenting online programs, and I encourage you to check them out. Still Running is a particularly useful book because while it discusses Buddhism, and in some pages and some detail, each chapter ends with a physical practice. And these practices apply to anyone and everyone of any denomination and for almost any physical endeavour. It had originally been my hope that I could interview Suisse in person and we could work on these practices together. But travel was a liability for most of us right now, kept to a minimum, and we spoke by phone instead. In the meantime, I went out and did my best to put her physical practices into motion, as you'll hear. And so, with that rather elaborate setup that will, I promise, take us back to the Gompa monks of Tibet and a chance for me to play more from my Lyricord album, I ask you to embrace momentarily the upbeat scar sounds of madness and either sit back or lean forward as we prepare to go. One step Um, I'd like to start off, Sarise, by just giving you the chance, maybe just a sort of one minute introduction to who you are and how you came about to write this book and, and indeed what this book is about. Well, I have been studying Zen for about over 25 years now, and I have been running for over 35 years now. I started running formally when I was about 10. And... Um, you know, at some point in in my practice and training in Zen, it uh, became obvious to me that this was such a, a a fertile ground for practice. That you know, in the the place that I train, Zen Mountain Monastery, part of the Mountains and Rivers Order, we do what's called body practice, and I speak about it briefly in my book which is really the study of the self through the body. It is using the body to, to really look at who we are at our core. And um, running, because it's a relatively simple and repetitive activity, lends itself, I have always felt, to a meditation practice. And in fact, many runners who don't have a formal spiritual practice speak of this, uh, running, cycling, swimming, you know, sports that you can do over a, a period of time, especially alone, lend themselves to this kind of practice. And so um, I began doing a series of retreats at the monastery on running as, as a spiritual practice. And after a few years, I realized I had all this material. Why don't I write it down and start actually putting together a book. So that's how Hostel Running came about. For most people, stepping into a monastery at any age, particularly at the age that you did, would seem to be 
a, ca- a classic case of taking a step outside your comfort zone. Having having read the book, I wasn't sure that that was necessarily the case. You make it sound like it was the thing that was calling you. In some ways, it was very natural, and it was certainly what I was seeing called feeling, called to do. I first went to the monastery during my senior year in college, so I was 21, 22, and um, became very interested in Buddhism, and specifically Zen and, and Zazen, and knew that I would do that. I had no inkling that I would eventually decide to become a monastic, but I knew that I would practice Zazen because I had, up until that point, I hadn't found a more powerful way to study myself and my mind. And so I started sitting regularly. And then after I graduated, I went to the monastery for a month, thinking that I would apply to stay for a year. And during that year, I realized that I had found what I thought was the most direct, the most effective way to address the suffering, the conflict that I saw in myself and in the world. So I had considered becoming a doctor, becoming a therapist, becoming a psychiatrist, becoming a professor. You know, I had considered different paths for my life, all with some sort of focus on helping, serving, and specifically addressing what I call, I believe, in in the book, you know, the, the human condition or the human question, the human problem, you know, why is it so difficult for us to live together? And uh, when I encountered Buddhism and began to learn about it and the teachings on suffering and the root of suffering and the antidote to suffering, it just seemed to make so much sense to me. How easy an adjustment has it been for you to um, uh, come back into this world and presumably to have to earn that kind of living that uh, in, mm-hmm. in a monastery some of those needs are, are taken care of within that kind of communist com- communal lifestyle? It was very difficult, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, I mean, now I feel quite a bit more settled, so it's been a year and a half since I left the monastery. And... Um, in the beginning, it was extremely challenging. I, I had to learn everything from getting a, an iPhone to applying for jobs. I remember telling a friend I would read some of these job descriptions, and I would think to myself, you know, I think I'm qualified for this job, but I actually am not sure because I didn't understand the language. And then every job said that they required the ability to multitask. And I kept thinking, but I've spent my whole life trying to stop multitasking. This is not something that I want to be doing. So, you know, and, and, and of course I was, I mean, I have friends and I have a community and stuff, but I was by myself, you know, doing, doing, you know, trying to support myself and find a place to live and all of that. There, there, there was an element to that, you know, when you live in community for so long, um, as you pointed out yourself, you know, there are things that, that are taken care of. And that's the whole point of living in community is, you know, we, we divide responsibilities so that we can focus on the task at hand, which is waking up. But I've been able to support myself by not having a full-time job so that I have time to, to write and teach. Well, and that's because to some extent, that's a, that's a lot of people's dreams. It was actually also just occurring to me that the step outside your comfort zone might have actually been more 
leaving the monastic lifestyle than than entering Absolutely. it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what was difficult about the monastic life, and that was the reason earlier I said that it was thought, was what was difficult for me in particular was living in community, being with people all the time. I had to learn how to do that because I'm, I'm really, I'm an introvert. I mean, I went to a monastery thinking I'm going to spend all this time in silence and solitude, <laughs> and it was not like that. So that was an adjustment, but definitely the bigger adjustment after all that time was was leaving. Because I also, you know, I entered the monastery straight out of college. So I didn't do the few things that people normally do in their 20s, where you go out and begin to get a job and an apartment and maybe a car. And, you know, I didn't do any of that. So I'm doing it now. So I was really relieved in reading the book to recognize that maybe we were coming from the same place, that, that running was a form of meditation, just as sitting zazen is. And um, I'd like to invite you maybe to just sort of pick up on that, how, how this premise of yours with the book is the, the idea that uh, running is the art of meditation in motion. Well, you know, the, the question that is most often asked by people who come to a place like the monastery, or really people who start practicing Buddhism, is how do I take this into my life? especially when they go to a place like the monastery, because everything there seems set up, you know, for spiritual practice. And so they wonder, how am I going to do this when I go back home? And I have my work responsibilities, and I have my family, and I have my kids, you know, asking for my attention, how am I going to do this? And so I always saw body practice as, a, as an excellent entry point into the study of the self, you know, as I, as I said before. And also as a good bridge to show people how to bring the stillness and the concentration, the presence of seated meditation into daily life. Because I thought if you can do it in a form of movement, like running, then you can learn how to do it when you're doing your work or when you are washing dishes after having dinner or when you are reading a story to your child. And so it... To me, it, it's not just that it's running per se as a, as a form of meditation, but that it's also a bridge from stillness into movement. And so that was really my impetus because, you know, I mean, there's so many places where you can learn about running um, that would work on your form, I mean, or your speed, you know, you, you would learn how to be a better runner. And although you hopefully will get a little bit of that uh, if you if you use my book, that really my, my impetus is for people to see that they can wake up and that, that uh, then is in, always insisting that you can use any aspect of your life to wake up. And by that I mean to find out who you are and to be free. And so... You know, and I say it in the book, you know, I, I'm not for a moment do I, would I claim that by running you're going to become enlightened. Um, it is simply that this just gives you one more way to practice being embodied, being with yourself, being with your breath, being with your thoughts, studying, studying yourself. So it's good for us to stress that while we're talking about running, uh, what we're talk actually talking about can be applied to other forms of, of exercise, yes? Right. I've had people take my retreats, uh, I think the oldest was 84 or 85, 
and she walked through through most of it. So again, it's really the mind that you bring to it, the the desire to use it as a as a tool for study. So if you're in a wheelchair, that that does not impede your ability to see yourself, to see your thoughts, to see what is happening in your body. So so yes, it is my chosen form of, of movement also because it's accessible. If I had access to a pool more frequently, I would swim also more more often because I love swimming. But just running is so easy. I just put on my shoes and I go wherever I am. And I agree. And that's the reason that I'm a big, big advocate for it. Um, you write something. I'm actually going to open the book up. And, and this is the one time I plan to quote from the book, but it's on page 16. And you write, ask yourself, if you knew you could live forever, would you still run? Or would you run as much as you do now? And before I read on, I said yes. And then I said yes, actually, probably more so. If I knew I could live forever, I'd have more time to run so I could do more running. (laughs) (laughs) And then you continue and you say, if the answer to both questions is yes, then not only do you run because you truly love it, you're also free of the multi-layered fear that compels many of us to exercise. Do, Do you think I kind of probably took that the right way in terms of your question and the answers? I think so. Um, and, you know, I mean, of course, when you put it in writing, sometimes it, it seems like kind of black and white and life isn't like that. I mean, I would, certainly wouldn't say that I'm completely free of, of the fear of death. Um, and yet my answer, too, would be that I would that I would also run. But it's taken. I don't think that answer would have been the same if you had asked me at different points in my life. You know, there there were points in which I was definitely running out of fear of different things, you know, just of, and I say this in my book, just of being with myself, feeling what I was feeling, you know, dealing with my weight, you know, like so many people do, women certainly, but but people in general do. And um, it's only been, I would say maybe the last eight years or so that I, that I got to a point, and I think largely because of practice, because of Zen practice, that I got to a point where I really could say honestly that I run for no other reason than because I love it. So in other words, I no longer do it to be healthy, to lose weight, out of some sense of discipline. When I feel like doing it, I do it. When I don't, I don't. I just feel like doing it most of the time because it feels so good. I want to give you the chance to talk about a couple of the um, the practices you have. The one that I found most um intriguing in a way and i did this last week up in new hampshire and actually um i know this does seem a little contradictory but i did it as best as i could i had the uh the voice recorder on and uh so i i i was able to give my thoughts at at certain points so this morning i'm up in the white mountains of new hampshire but it was the stop start running um which is really about a, a sort of key thing about trying to get into that meditation would you like to just take a minute to describe the stop start running and how that can be helpful for for anybody seeking to get that kind of um that that i guess that meditation in motion sure it's really a concentration practice and it's you know i think of it the the seated equivalent would be to see a thought you know, so if you're if you're counting your breath for your zazen, or if you're following your breath, it's that moment when you see the thought, you stop counting, you see the thought, you let it go, and you start over. 
And so stop, start running is the, the moving equivalent of that. So where you're running slowly, slower than you normally would, so that you can really be paying attention to your thoughts. And you're following your breath. You're really placing all of your attention on your breath, anchoring yourself, anchoring your attention in your breath. And when you notice that your mind moves away from that and then a, a thought comes in about when am I going to be done or this is boring, you know, whatever the thought is, you notice and you actually physically stop. So, quick report. All of 40 seconds in. Obviously, I'm thinking about the fact that I'm not thinking about anything. You take a moment and then you begin running again. So let me try again. Here we go. So it's a, it's a very annoying practice <laughs> if you just want to go out for a run, but it's effective if you want to build concentration because the impetus is to really stay focused so that you don't have to stop running. And, you know, and of course, you know, we all cheat and stuff just as people do in Zazen. It's like, oh, that wasn't really a thought. I'll just keep, I'll just keep. Counting. There were some there were some thoughts. I found myself thinking about the interview we're going to be doing next week and how I would apply what I'm doing right now to the interview. That uh, that could be considered a reasonably good excuse, but it still gets me an F. <laughs> what this is really showing you, the, the point is not to get to a point where you don't have any thoughts. The point is to see often how distracted we are and how difficult it is to do something that would seem to be so relatively simple, like taking a step and staying with your breath, is actually very difficult for us to do, and probably increasingly so, because we are, are increasingly have trained ourselves to be distracted. I'm going to get bonus points for being aware through the corner of my eyes that I was passing the house with the Trump flag and that I was not going to allow myself to be distracted by it, and I was not. And so it's a very counterintuitive, therefore potentially powerful practice. You're really teaching yourself, you're training yourself how to stay focused on one thing at a time, over time. What I found really interesting was that it made me realize how much I... Uh, use running as a chance to look around me. Now, th th that in fairness is I often like seeing people around me when I'm in a new place. The, the thing that I do is put on the running shoes and go explore. So I'm going to take in my surroundings and that's very inherent with me. I, I would usually want to smile at somebody and just, you know, hope that, hope that we can all make the world a little bit of a better place just being out, seeing each other. Um, but I took, I took this exercise last week as a chance to actually kind of narrow my gaze and um, almost treat it like the, um, the walking zazen, um, uh, where you really just kind of keep your gaze narrowly, sort of your know, eyes half downwards um, in front of you. And if you're not running in traffic, then I, I found it was possible to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's when it really begins to become running zazen or, or still running. And, you know, and I just want to point out that, um, you know, each of these practices has its time and its place and its function. And so, you know, later on in the book, I speak about just running and I speak about running simply for the joy of it, where if you want to run with music, if you want to look around, if you want to go fast, if you want to go slow, 
so that there's room for all of it, right? There's the discipline and the focus, and there's also just the, the joy and the the relaxation of just being with yourself and feeling your body moving so that, you know, you don't want at any point, you don't want any of these practices to become too tight because then they just become another chore for you to do that take the joy out of running. There was, oh, there was something else I was actually uh, sort of taking. I think the idea of the mantra is, is very useful. Um, and I, I like that in the book, when, when you're suggesting a mantra, you're saying, well, it could be a Buddhist phrase, but it could equally as uh, just be a running phrase, like run the mile that you're in. And, mm -hmm. Um, again, just a, 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 the, the quick rundown on how you recommend people bring that in to, to the running as, as you lay it out in the practice part of that chapter. Mm -hmm. Well, mantras certainly are not new. Um, certainly they're not new in the religious world, um, but they have, I would say, probably in the last 50 years or so, so become, you know, widespread in, in the world of sports because people have seen their effectiveness. I mean, mantra means mind instrument of mind protection. So what it does is it, it gathers your attention, once again, to a, a single point, in this case a phrase or a word. And I have found them helpful uh, when I'm moving. So sometimes I pair it you know, with, with my breath, especially at times when I feel a little more tired or if you're, I feel a little less focused to have something a little stronger than the breath to anchor me. So to have a phrase or a word that I have to think about as I'm saying helps to keep my attention. Athletes have used them throughout, you know, their, their careers to, to encourage themselves, you know, inspire themselves. And I think I, I quote Scott Jurek, who was kind enough to write an endorsement for my book. You know, he had a, a mantra that he used if he ran for 24 hours. A quick interruption to highlight this fact. It's very cool indeed that Still Running comes with a blurb from Scott Jurek and on the front cover, no less. Scott is almost indisputably the greatest ultramarathon runner the USA has ever known, certainly the person who's done the most for the sport. He's also a best-selling author in his own right, a committed vegan and cook, and by all accounts, a thoroughly nice guy. So it's one way to, in a sense, kind of keep yourself psyched up but also more fundamentally to stay focused because one of the things we don't realize is how much energy we use, we spend when we are unfocused. I'm going to follow this up with doing the mantra. I've got a couple that I believe I got from a barefoot running book, though it also kind of just segues or morphs into Born to Run at a certain point. And that was... Um, there are two of them. One is uh, lift, 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 lift. That's a reminder to lift your feet rather than to be forcing them down. That's something that's uh, also covered in this book. That's a lightness of foot that will protect you. And the other um, is, um, I'm pretty sure this is in Born to Run. It's easy, 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 light, 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 smooth, 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 fast, fast 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 the notion here is that if you take if you make your running easy if you so keep your form easy keep yourself light that's the lift you could almost exchange light for lift keep yourself smooth keep just that smooth form and posture going you will become fast it will take care of itself the speed will take care of itself 
The one that you said that your uh, students at the running retreats most enjoyed is blind running. Can you tell me what blind running is and how we, how uh, any of us could incorporate that into our practice? Well, it's a practice that I developed when I was asked by a blind runner to run with him. And um, afterwards, it occurred to me that the experience of running without the same degree of, of vision, certainly in his case with no vision whatsoever, would have to be a, a radically different experience. And I've done some night runs myself in the past, and I used to love running without a flashlight. Of course, I wasn't completely blind, but there was this, this sense of needing to really be inside of my body and inside of my own perception instead of focusing outward as we so often do and the the experience then was both much more um, in some ways meditative but also much more enjoyable there was something uh, extremely there's something extremely exhilarating about running as fast as you can blindfolded and so that's what I developed you know over time in my in my workshop so so runners are paired together with somebody who's about their same height and about the same speed, then they take turns leading and being the blind runner. And the only way that it works is if you truly cannot see. So you, so you have to make sure that you really, you know, we usually use a bandana, but that you really can't see anything because if you, if you can, the practice doesn't really work. And then I have them do short repetitions over a, a short stretch of road where there are, of course, no cars, where it's safe, it's flat, you know, there, there's no, um, the, the possibility of them getting injured is minimized. And first I have them just start slowly and getting, get used to each other's pace. And then slowly they build up speed until by the time we get to the last repetition, the blind runner, they're both running as fast as they can go. Wow. Being blind. Wow. And you're saying that people um, really, really enjoy that. I'm, I, 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 it's not something I've been able to practice with anybody. I imagine that it, 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 it could be quite sensational if you can put that trust in somebody. Yes, and because there's, there's this aspect of true freedom of, of course, trusting another person, you know, that they have you and, and that they will, they will take care of you as you run. But there's this also this immense feeling of, of freedom in your own body. And normally what I do, the way that I actually finish is I have everybody take off their bandanas and then run another um, repetition as fast as they can go. And so, and, and my, my encouragement is for them to, to keep that same feeling of joy when they're running, quote unquote, regularly as they do when they're running blind. Right. And really, to me, that joy really comes from the wonder of being in this incredible thing that is the human body and to truly be embodying it. Because as I've said in my book, you know, so many of us runners are not even there when we run. You know, we just want to get it over with. Very, very true. And that's a, that's a central tenet of the book is to be inside your run, to be experiencing it. But to talk about the incredible body that we are in, you also use the example of another animal body and you have something called deer technique. So can you tell us what deer technique is? Well, the deer visualization is really based on a visualization 
that I created to help people experience the power of visualization, what Tibetan Buddhists call creation, meditation. And so I have them run up a very steep, long hill, first normally, and I say the only thing, the only condition is for you to not stop. Even if you have to be walking, just don't stop. And so they struggle up the hill, you know, many of them, and then we come back, and then we stretch, and then we quiet down, and I lead them through a very detailed guided meditation where they imagine themselves to be a deer in the woods who is slowly, you know, getting up, feeling really that animal body that all of a sudden bolts. And so they're running as a deer would, and hopefully with that same kind of grace and ease. And so once we've gone through the visualization, and it takes maybe about 10 or 15 minutes, depending on how detailed I make it, then we go back out and I say, okay, now holding that image in your mind and in your being, now run the hill again and don't stop. And it is amazing to see the difference that it makes. Most people just, you know, glide up that hill as if it was nothing. Right towards the end of the book, and it's actually the second to last chapter, because in the very last chapter, you ask people to um, to sit still once again, to actually sit once again in Zazen. Um, so on that second to last chapter, you, you bring the book to its title, to uh, the finale, I guess, uh, to still running, not uh, which, which implies um, a stillness within the running. And it's in a way to bring all of these previous practices together. And I just wanted to ask given that you're the author of this book and these different techniques, how regularly, how easily, if at all, do you find you can engage in still running, this idea of this sort of total freedom of thought while running? How easily achievable is that? And can, can we all get there? Mm-hmm. I think we can all get there. Uh, you know, how often it happens. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't keep, uh, I don't, I don't keep a log anymore of my runs, um, just to, to, to say it bluntly. Um, but I remember, I definitely remember runs where you could say where everything fell into place and that, that stillness within movement was there. What I can say is that it tends to happen more, uh, when I'm, when I usually when I'm running in the morning and when I do it straight from Zazen, right? So, so that, that, that run really feels like a continuation of my seated practice. And th- those are the times when I feel most grateful and humbled by this human body and this human mind that I have and the fact that I can experience this and the fact that I know that the the fact that it happens in running is just a you know it's just one example I mean people have experienced have described this experience in many many different ways and so I I don't even want to imply that it's something to strive for like another thing that you should you know try to recreate I think it's the opposite. I think like Zazen, it is learning over time, over a long period of time, how to get out of the way enough to let life move through you. 
Like we say, I can't say that happens too often. Although it did occur to me right before taping this particular episode, when I was one of the 45 lucky runners on the pandemic-reduced field who set off on the Catstail Trail Marathon, a 25-mile haul over some of the Catskill Mountains' tallest and toughest peaks, with a mile of road at the end to bring it to full marathon distance. Still, it occurred to me that maybe the only reason that I got engaged there in that kind of pure running was because I had no choice. I could only focus on the focus that was the running. And so, on the Monday afterwards, at lunchtime, with some beautiful weather and despite my sore legs, I went out to the local track, took my phone with me to record my thoughts, and just before speaking to Zuise that second time, did my best over a period of an hour to follow through the various practices she describes in the book and to conclude by seeing if I could put myself in that position of still running. So as we say right to the end of this chapter, if you find yourself tuning out during this practice, start with a shorter run next time. It's better to run with complete attention for 10 minutes than to run mindlessly for an hour. I ran for 10 minutes, effectively just about a mile. I wouldn't say I was able to completely not have thoughts. I would say I maybe spent some time counting my steps because it's something I was doing just a while ago, counting my steps to my breath. But I tried to keep my breath down at my hara. I tried to have my gaze low on the straights. I tried to tr close my eyes as much as I could trust them to. And every time a thought came up, which were mostly good ones today, I let them go. And as we say right, little by little, You'll find your body relaxing, your mind quieting down, your attention sharpening. Just as with Zazen, after a while, you won't need to work so hard to stay present. She closes out this chapter by saying, with regards to how you choose to run, whether you want to have music, partners, etc. What you do is completely up to you. Just choose deliberately. Choose to be awake in all the many and varied moments of your life. So that in the end, hopefully you'll be able to look back at that life and say, it wasn't perfect, but I was there for it. And this is where we get back to the Gompa monks. And by extension, the sounds from my LP of Tibetan ritual music. At the end of the book, um, you write about, uh, if, uh, and feel free to correct my pronunciation, the Lungonpal runners of monastic Tibetan Buddhism um, and the marathon monks of Japan, who, if I've got this correct, uh, uh, can run up to a thousand days straight at a certain time. Uh, you, you talk about the trance that they can put themselves into run as they do. And, I, and, and of course, you also... Uh, clearly drawing a connection between that there's a long connection, long standing uh, tradition of running within within Buddhism and within a monastic lifestyle. But um, you then talk about, uh, as best you can, the trance that they would appear to put themselves in as they as they run just this, these kind of distances uh, and over some very difficult terrain. And I don't know that you'd come to this conclusion, so I wanted to ask it. Is, is that essentially some form of enlightenment to get into that sense of trance? I mean, is that something... Uh, something just pure that they are getting themselves into when they run these incredible distances as as Buddhist monks. Well, you know, I'm I'm really speaking as a as a not even as an observer. You know, I mean, I've read about both groups, 
and have never been in the presence of either. And Lungompa, uh, I don't know if anybody has other than, than, you know, Alexandra David Neal, which is, I, whom I mentioned in, in the book, you know, her account, which was, I think, happened back in the 50s when Tibet was still open. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, what I know is what they say, you know, the Marathon monks, I, I think I, I have a quote there in the book, you know, they're, they're saying they don't do this for the glory. They do it really as a form of service and as a form of, um, uh, I really see when I read about their, their discipline and the training that they go through, I really see it as a, as an extreme, um, form of, you could say self-denial, but, but self, it's not denial. It's a, it's a letting go. It's getting to the point where you can no longer hold on to this idea of the self. And I love that little, there's this little anecdote about the Lungompa. Uh, somebody said, and I have no idea if it's even true, but that they became so light, they had to be weighted down with chains because otherwise they would just like float up, they would levitate. But it's not hard for me to imagine, and I think I draw that, that parallel in, in the book, that um, when you think of the self as weight, when you think of it as, as a burden, which often it is, and you think of these practices that are actively working to see through this illusion of the self, that you would then be a, a lighter being, you know, that you would move through the world, whether physically or you could say psychically, you would move through the world in a, in a lighter way. I, I think that is absolutely possible. Now, can you liken that to enlightenment? <laughs> you know, perhaps I'm being uh, a little loose here with with my my definitions, but you know, I mean, enlightenment really is seeing through the illusion of the self. Is seeing that the self is a construct, uh, useful, useful, and and I would say necessary construct, but a construct nonetheless. Do these uh, monastics attain that state through running? I don't know. You know, to be very honest, I, I don't know. Do I think it's possible? Yes, I do. Still Running, The Art of Meditation in Motion by Vanessa Zrise Goddard is published by Shambhala and available wherever you get your books. If you need to order online, Either do so through your local store or try bookshop.org, which allows you to select an independent store that can receive a portion of the income. You can also find Zuisei on the web at vanessasweseigoddard.org and on both Instagram and Facebook via Zuisei Goddard. And because some of the spelling here might confuse you, it's all in the show notes. That's the thing that you look at on your phone or on your laptop that actually tells you who put this together and what it's all about. The Zen Mountain Monastery, by the way, is zmm.org, or for my British friends who will otherwise insist I've sold out to the Yankee dollar, zmm.org. This episode of One Step Beyond was written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher, partially at the studios of Radio Kingston. 
Incidental music in this episode is from the LP Lamas and Monks, Tibetan Ritual Music, recorded in Sikkim in 1961 for the Lyricord label. The theme song One Step Beyond is by Madness, used with the band's permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. You can subscribe to a newsletter or just reach out via email. One Step Beyond at ijamming.net And of course you can find us on social media. Just search One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher and we should come up on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Please consider hitting the subscribe button and or leaving a positive rating and or positive review. If NPR can ask, so can I. But if you don't have time to connect, that's understandable. The world is a busy, busy place with far too many distractions, as was discussed on this episode. And if you made it this far, hopefully we're doing something right. So, until next time, enjoy your activities, stay healthy, and Zen. <laughs>